0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Premier Crew. We're delighted today to be joined by Peter Crawford, co-founder of Sip Champagnes. Sip Champagnes is an online retailer that focuses solely on grower champagnes. If you don't know them, please, please do check them out. bit of an itinerary for today, we'll be covering Peter's journey into the wine trade. We'll be understanding champagne as a region, followed by an introduction to grower champagne, which is where these three wines that Peter's kindly brought along come in. The links to these wines will be posted in the description, so if you want to check them out, please, please do. Before we get stuck into these, how are you? And thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm um, very excited to open these three bottles and, uh, and talk about the journey, but for me, this is what Champagne's about, you know, in, like investigating, discovering, enjoying three new bottles, I suspect, to, your, to you both. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and having the joy of, of, of talking through them and seeing whether you like them.
0: Good, good. Well, looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. And thanks so much for coming on. We know you're busy with Harvest Up in Scotland. Lots going on with cider, apples, pressing. So appreciate you making the time today. Um, we want to talk to you about your journey getting into the wine trade. Before we do that, let's kick off with one of the wines. Um, Bonaire, Blanc de Blanc? Yes. Okay, cool. So producer Bonaire, Blanc de Blanc. We don't know much much else so tell us about the wine how do you know how do you know the producer what's your relationship like with them what's their approach to winemaking where are they based fill us in give us give it give us a bit of an so, overview
1: yeah so so bonnet is actually one of the one of the producers i've known for the longest time um Jean emmanuel has taken over and i for me i i think champagne can be so many things to so many people mm. and Bonaire was such an easy one for me and for us as a company to bring on board <laughs> because it is, I think it is about as classical as you can get okay. for champagne, for, from a grower, from a record on Um So they are based in the village of Yeah. So as you, I, as you would guess from Cremel, um it is in the heart of the Blanc-de-Blanc region, so Chardonnay. Um, this is a blend from Cremel, Chouy and Wari. Uh, it is very classic winemaking, so steel tank vinification um, uh, with, with champagne yeast inoculation. And it's, there's a lovely purity to it. I need to check the back label. I think it's 19 base, isn't it? He's brought, really? brought, down, it. He's brought down the dosage, I think, to four grams, um, which I think sits quite nicely. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, four grams a litre, yeah. Yeah, so, so it, they, historically... From what? So it was historically slightly higher, up from five, six, seven brought down okay. with this new iteration 19 is a great vintage really really good vintage of of the 18 19 20, that was the one 19 is the one to okay. look out for and i think what you get here i'm just going to take the last one. Yeah, yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah do mm. do. <laughs> so
1: i think what you get here is is the the archetypal expression of northern uh coup de blanc chardonnay yeah it's clean it's crisp it's chalky beautiful purity and and that's the dosage works really really nicely um the cup of tea is just wearing through but the the dosage works really nicely to kind of bring the finish together and it's just i I think it's everything you need it to be in a in a non-vintage chardonnay
0: yeah sure and when with with the producer you said you've known them for a long time how long is that because obviously you've been getting champagne for
1: 20 plus years. Yeah. 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 So, so no, I've, I've known John Emmanuel probably for about 20 years. I, I would guess. Okay. I would okay. guess he's, he, so they're, they're based in the village of Cremont. As I said, they're one of the bigger producers in Cremont. So, um, they, they have a lot of vines and it means for, as I was entering into the world of champagne, they were mm. the ones that I probably have most access to. I just kind of see their wines around. I'd know of them because they have several, several hectares. And, Importantly for me, as I was growing up through the journey of Champagne, they were also one of the few growers that had access to old vintages as well. Okay. So I, I, as I was learning more about Champagne, I learned really that I loved old Champagne. And that's what was such an amazing part of the early journey for me, was discovering old Champagne. And they were one of the few growers where you could go and you could see 85, 88, 79 or whatever and you'd find bottles and they were available to buy available yeah. to buy okay exactly. okay and they were astonishing mm. beautiful wines really good really good balance of beautiful freshness that you get mm. from the village of Cramon and and the surrounding area and then also the this this wonderful kind of nutty richness coming through with maturity
2: and what would you say is sort of like the? Has the producer got like a certain philosophy in certain in terms of like vineyard management and the and winemaking?
1: So his his philosophy is it's unfair to say old, old school because that's not really what it's about. But it's fairly straight down the line uh, philosophy in terms of of uh, kind of uh, vine management and his philosophy in the in the um the winery is, is fairly classical. Um, as I said steel vinification, um, steel big steel vats and. He is moving away, a little bit away from that. In the coming year, you'll see the, the new iterations where he's doing small ludi, small parcel wines. Um, but thankfully, the core of his production stays with this style, with this very classic style.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and, and do you, do you sell... Like how many wines from his his range do you sell? We Crucet. we sell,
1: we, we sell uh, this. He does a lower end wine, with, with, which is a blend um, of, of Pinot Noir, Meunier and Chardonnay. Okay. And then, I said, lower end is unfair, but it, it's entry level yeah. wine. And then he does an amazing vintage wine, which is, which is, as I say, something that you can put in the cellar for a decade and forget about. It, and it's absolutely brilliant. And I say, he's going to bring out his Lou D, which I think will be really fascinating. They should be arriving in the next shipment we're doing, so oh
2: okay okay oh I will have to look out for that i will have yeah. to look out for that so I mean it's pretty obvious basically that just remembering <coughs> that that you're super passionate about champagne and that that basically just comes through in everything you do um but you didn't actually start your career in wine um where, where did it begin and how did you develop a passion for wine
1: yeah so I, I was at university in St Andrews um studying maths and computer, computer science which was <laughs> <laughs> makes me feel That's uncomfortable that, to say <laughs> um needless to say i did not last very long doing that and i had a job in an odd bins, as so many people did in those days for the weekend and my manager and assistant manager were amazing and they they pointed me at champagne and said go and learn about that and i learned about it and the 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 opportunity with Odd Bins back in those days was fantastic. You know, they really did support you and help you learn. And, and we opened a lot of bottles. We enjoyed a lot of wines. And it was really there with a very good mate of mine, Richard, where he brought in a bottle of Paul Roger And this was back in 99, 2000. I can't remember what it was. And we, it was an 88 Paul Roger And I never had a vintage champagne that had that thing, that secondary note to it. I'd never experienced that. Champagne had always been this clean, crisp, vertical wine, which was lovely, but you you have it as an aperitif and that's great. And you, you know, that that that's that's it. Whereas this had something else. This had some depth to it. This had some biscuitiness. This had some kind of toasty elements, some butter. And I was just completely flabbergasted by it. And it, it just set me on this journey. I started, you know, it was that wonderful time where you could buy I remember this unbelievable moment where I bought a load of Polarajay from a, I can't remember the company, it doesn't matter. I bought it from, from this company down south and um, arrived a box of, of various vintages of Polarajay and they just chucked in a bottle of 28. And they sent so the email. Sorry, was it, a bottle of 28. 28 Polarajay. 1928. They chucked, yeah, they just chucked okay. it in and said, and they sent me, it was, was it pre-email? No, it would have been, there would have been email, but it, they sent me an email or sent me a message basically saying, we don't know if, we don't know if this is going to be okay, but you should, you should try it anyway. Um, And, and yeah, and that was in the box alongside of, you know, a, a plethora of other vintages. And you were able to buy vintage champagne for very little back then. So we, we drunk a lot and we put on a lot of tastings with friends and family and, and that started that whole journey into the discovery of what champagne could be yeah. for me.
0: Did the um, Sip ever include bottles of 1928? Paul Roger or whatever
1: there? Sadly <laughs> not. Uh, yeah. We will... We will so if I'm ordering
0: next week, I won't, <laughs> I won't find a little <laughs> treasure in the, in the bottom of the
1: box. Yeah. <laughs> no, sad, sadly not. But, but it is definitely something we're doing. And, and um, you know, Jean-Emmanuel's wines are a classic example of that. And I think, you know, we could, not, not free, but we could introduce... Small lots of old vintages um, from the likes of Bonaire and, and other producers um, as little little treats for people to have because they are for those who who are wanting to join in that journey. It is so it's so exciting when you when you try those old wines and they are on point. They are like nothing else. I don't think there's a, a wine that, I don't think there's a wine on earth that goes through the journey that champagne goes through as it matures. It's so unique. Uh, and it's so brilliant because it has these beautiful peaks that it goes through. And it, in its, uh, I hate to use the expression, but Dom Perignon have nailed it with, with its plenitudes, mm-hmm. its expressions through those, those generations as it ages are amazing. And I love, I love capturing, and let's be honest, that's, what, that's so much of what Grower Champagne is about, capturing the first plenitude, the, the, the freshness, the vibrancy, the expression of fruit, the expression of terroir. That's what's so beautiful about Grower Champagne. But if you capture the right wine in the right moment, as it, as it reaches 15, maybe 20 years old, and you, you start to get these really beautiful, rich notes, this kind of nuttiness, this, this, expri- this, this layered expression. I mean, we have, we have another producer, Kaizlemmer Vinitec 04, which is a really good example of that. You know, it's, what is it, uh, 17, 18 years old now, and it's just starting to hit that gorgeous expression. Um, and then, and then you go through into the tertiary phase at kind of 25 years old where you get these you know, incredibly rich, nutty elements with mushroom and, and, uh, and kind of earthy notes, which I think are amazing Where well.
0: does your, you said you like mature champagne, where in that sort of 15, 25 or 25 plus range do you sort of find for you personal sweet spot? It,
1: it's so difficult to say because every single wine is different. Yeah. We, we, I was in Champagne a couple of weeks ago and um, I was at Port Roger and Laurent um, who is who, who runs Porrocher, he's just the loveliest guy. Um, he'll hate me for saying that. Uh, <laughs> and and, and um, he cracked open completely blind, served a bottle. I knew it was pre-60s because of the color of the glass, but it was, I genuinely thought it was late 50s. And it was in 1921. Uh, disgorged in 99. Uh, oh, sorry, recorked in 99. And it was just mind-blowing. So you know, pick me a wine that's 102 years old. I think's perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, good luck with that, anyone. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let's talk SIP. How did you just give us
2: everyone a very quick introduction? What is SIP, and tell us the story about how you set that up with your co-founder?
1: Yes. So Daniel and I set up SIP in May 2020, um, and the idea for me had been brewing. Um, both with myself and with Daniel for several, several years. So I've been traveling to Champagne and probably done over 150 visits to Champagne over the last 20 years. And when I did so, um, back in pre, pre-Brexit pre days, I would always come back, you know, travel back with the car, travel back with a couple of cases, and I'd give different wines to friends and family and say, look, try this. I went to this amazing place and we got this amazing bottle. And I realized, you know, 99 times out of 100, just people were just like, wow, this is not champagne. This is something else. This is, this is incredible. This is so much, there's so much more going on in this, this wine, not just with, not just in the glass, but the story behind it and everything else going along with it. And so when Daniel got married, I kind of, for the life of me, I can't remember when it was, but Daniel got married and he asked me to get wine for his wedding. And we did that. And um, we, I, I came back over with, I think it was like six or seven different champagnes and we picked on a particular producer um, and, and he had those for the wedding. Everyone loved it and they, everyone was ordering more of that champagne. We we're like, well, this is a great idea. Put the idea to rest because we were both going through, we had different businesses, different things going on. And COVID hit. Actually, just, just before COVID, Dan and I met, I think in February, Jan, Feb 2020. And we're like, you know, th- that wedding was really interesting. Loads of people loved the wine. Loads of people are still asking for it. You know, years later, we should look into this. COVID happened. And very, very quickly, I had to close my business down. And I, uh, I went back up north and we were like chatting away over, over the phone, over email. And we we're like, this, we should do this. Um, he, he, um, he, he, I think, kind of moved on in his work. And we're just like, let's do it. Let's create it so that the vision for me for SIP was always about discovery. And I I mean, I don't mean that in a kind of, you know, let's all make this wonderful and make a discovery. I mean, you can be as flowery about it as you want. But uh, for me, the, the worst thing in the world is to sit and drink the same stuff every day. Like I want to discover something. I want to discover something new, something fresh, some new vineyard, some new expression of winemaking. And... That's the most exciting thing for me. So we were fairly bullish. We started with 25 producers in May, uh, May June time when we eventually opened our, opened our, our doors, so to speak. And we've so that, got-
0: that's, sort of, that's quite a rapid turnaround from like Jan Feb as an idea to then, you know, May, June getting something
1: Yeah. So, so, I mean, I, I frantically got on the phone. I, I think one of, one of the, it was, it was that really amazing moment, I think, in, in the world of wine as COVID hit I think everyone was worried. Everyone was worried about what was happening, where things could go, what lockdown was going to do. And I got on the phone with a load of producers that I knew and loved and said, look, I'm thinking about this idea. Uh, Most of them were like, well, we we thought you were going to do this like 10 years ago. (laughs) 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 Come on, yeah, yeah. finally (laughs) you've realised. Yeah, we could have told you this. And they were hugely supportive. They're really, really supportive. And they jumped at it. So we started, as I said, um, with twenty five. We very quickly grew to about sixty plus producers, and it's it's all about that journey. I just love the idea of of allowing people to find their way through champagne by getting a bottle or a case and discovering what you can, discovering the differences between the regions, discovering the differences in a particular region between winemaking between uh, viticultural te- techniques and, and, you know, a whole plethora of other ideas. And I think that's, for me is, it's what it's all about.
2: Yeah. It's it's funny you say that because, um, I'm pretty sure like on your website, one of the things that you can buy is like a discovery case and it's quite, you don't, you actually might not know this, but for Ben's birthday, uh, oh, yeah. I think yeah. it was like three years ago or something. Um, uh, two, uh, years uh, ago, uh, two years ago, two years ago, two years ago, uh, another friend of ours, uh, and and I clumped together and got Ben like the initial six entry-level discovery case or something. Uh, and yeah, it was properly cool, like sampling those different ones side by side. I think it was like the Beaugrand was in there, uh, the Didier Herbert entry-level, and I think we're going to have one of his yep. different ones today. Um, but yeah, it was, it was super cool. And I think, you know, it's a real niche in the market because not many people know about Gros Champagne uh, and they're more undercover than, say, the Grand Marks you were referencing before.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think so. I-, I think one of the... So the UK market is very, very unique. Because it's 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 a very mature market. So we we have the Grand Marques, uh, which I see a bottle behind you. Uh, <laughs> we have the Grand Marques, and they are wonderful. There's, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that the reason why I entered into the world of champagne was because of the Grand Marques, and I still love them. I still enjoy bottles, bottles, cases, jeros of them uh, as much as I can. Um, but the the charm for me was about, as I say, discovering the smaller producers. The UK has. Got a pretty solid base of small production champagnes, so grower champagnes, um, which I love. So the the, the likes of Jerome Pivot, uh, Emmanuel Brochet, Savar, um, Rapha Breche, they're, they're they're amazing wines, and um, they're very hard to get these days, um, sadly. And um, the prices have gone sky high, um, which is frustrating. I, I recognise it. I get it um i get obviously from a business per- point of view i get it um for, from a consumer point of view it is challenging um because i think the consumer is still very much thinking this this niche right grandmarks are here the growers are here if i want something really interesting it's got a story i can go here and i don't have to spend a fortune yeah. um so we we always wanted to make sure that the the wines that we bring over are affordable you know the, the champagne's not free obviously <laughs> um so, and, and sadly for, for the consumer, champagne has increased in price over the last three or four years. Um, that's something we have no control over, but th- it has increased in price. But we want it to be affordable. We want it to be fair and, pr- and priced in a way that allows people to to get onto the journey and then explore the region yeah. as much as physically possible. Um, and gr- growers really allow you to do that. That's the, the joy of them.
2: Yeah. Um, I think we want to like go and deep dive into champagne in a second and get stuck into it. But I think we should also try, um, the second wine just before we do that and, and get us moving.
0: Do we, do we crank um, it?
2: Ben? Okay. Cr- get it cranking, get it cranky. Um, so the second wine, um, and Peter, just correct anything that I'm saying wrong, uh, is by family, uh, uh, it's a non-vintage, it's called Meunier Perpetuelle, And I think it's a Blanc de Noir, hundred percent Pinot Meunier. um, Talk us through, why did you choose this wine to get on the podcast?
1: So uh, firstly, uh, uh, I mean, to explore the region, you have to physically explore the region. So um, we'll, we'll go into the third wine in a second. But with the Bonaire, we have the Cote de Blanc. So Cote de Blanc, Chardonnay. With the Deluvin, we've got Pure Meunier. And Meunier is uh, mainly produced in the Valley de Marne. So that's the bit uh, that, that heads out towards Paris. And with the third wine, we're into the Montaneran. So you've got the three main regions. Now, of course, there are a couple of other bits of the region which are amply represented on the on the SIP website, but I wanted to bring the three main regions today for you to try. So um, this, this is a truly unique wine, and it's one that I absolutely love. It's such a cool expression of a grape variety that not very many people know about. It is a hugely planted grape variety. So the, the, the basics of Champagne are in a nutshell, third, third, third planted across the region with a very small amount of the four other grape varieties, um, which we do... What, what, what are they, by
0: the way? Because I was going to ask this. <laughs> so you caught me in the middle of
1: this, but uh, I want to Petit Mélier, Arban, Pinot Gris and Pinot Blanc. And we do have them represented um, in other wines on the website as well. So do have a look around for those because mm. they're super cool. And you'll, you'll find a lot more of those coming onto the market in the coming years as climate change and winemaking allows you to use those grape varieties without having too much of an impact on the, the profile. So yes, so pure Meunier is rare enough as it is, um, but pure Meunier using a perpetual reserve is, I think, and I'd love to be challenged on this, I think it's unique. Okay, like, so like a, uh, could
2: a, true, you, a true one-off.
1: Uh, true, it's a true one-off, but but unique in the region. I don't think anybody else makes a 100% perpetual reserve pure Meunier that is sold as a single wine. So, many people use it as a as a as a reserve to add to a wine, but this I think is the only unique um, perpetual reserve.
0: What 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 does perpetual reserve mean? So, just for our listeners,
1: if you, if you the best way to look at it, it's it's incorrect, but the best way to look at it is like a cellar. Right. So it's it's a, it's a. It started as a base wine, then every year you take a part of it away and you replace it with the next vintage. Right. Then you take a bit away, you replace it with the next vintage ad infinitum. So this was started in 1992. This is actually 2018 yeah. base, not uh, not 19, as I said. So this is 18 base, which yes. is a super ripe right year, so it's actually really interesting to try it. We're on to the 19 base, um, on, mainly on the web on on the um, website. This must have been in my cellar um, at 67. So, But... It's it's such a unique expression of of a really wonderful grape variety. Most people don't consider Meunier to be an age worthy grape. Um, clearly, that is not correct. It's more about how you how you use it, how you make it. Um, and I think what we have,
0: you know, d- sorry, I knew you were about to say something. The, the, the um, what you were saying before about discovering new wines matched with affordability. Surely this is one of the sort of the peaks of of that, you know, the yeah. joining the bracket between the oh, two. Honestly,
1: I'm, I'm so glad you pointed that because that's something I, I don't talk about money in in that sense very often, but for yeah. me, this is absolutely it. This is the 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 optimum discovery of something incredibly unique and a price point that's really yeah. pretty pretty good. Um and and you've got to remember this is, you know, this has been this has started in ninety two. You know, this is not something. He's he's not just bashed this out over the over the weekend. Mm. <laughs> this is yeah. decades, decades yeah. of of production to create something. It's still beautifully fresh and refined and clean, but it's got this r- kind of really rich um, stone fruit note to it. It's got loads. I'm salivating just talking about it. It's got loads of loads of depth to it, and and this is his entry level cuvee. It's like a you know astonishing wine.
2: Do you, know, do you know, just compared to the, the <coughs> first wine we had, the uh, Chardonnay. Yeah. I mean, it's so different in profile. Yeah, so like, different yeah, in profile. And that's so cool. Like, even when I just smelt it and just put it, you know, on the palate, it was just instantly different. Look, look at the, the colour, back, colour as well. Like, yeah, like, yeah it's, know, it, there's it, real yeah, richness yeah. on Real that. richness in the colour, Gold.
1: exactly.
2: Yeah, this is, this, is a, this is such a cool find. Mm. And so the producer, I mean, yeah, also going back to those back vintages and having like a reserve wine that far back. Yeah, it's like if anyone wants a cash flow headache, try and do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, just, just, um, think about it. So how did you like develop a relationship with that producer? What was that sort of
1: journey like? So J- Jeff is hilarious. So Jeff, he and I have a, have a rather comical relationship because we never really met. So I, I didn't know Jeff wines before, um, before, before I started SIP and I, I heard about this guy, I kind of saw him on social media and then obviously COVID happens and I couldn't get out to visit and we brought his wines over fairly early on in the journey, I seem to remember. Um, I remember getting the samples and been blown away by this wine and a, and a couple of other wines. He makes a beautiful um, Chardonnay called Le Blême, which is a really, really amazing oak vinified Chardonnay as well. I remember being completely blown away by these wines. And we, we started importing them. And then COVID lockdowns dropped off. I can't remember when it was in 21. I made a trip out to Champagne. Um, to go and meet the producers that that we had brought on and then also hopefully bring on a few more. Jeff and I never met, then went through to 22, or oh no, maybe it was 22, back end of 21, I can't remember what it was. And then eventually, we eventually met at, in a fleeting moment as I was kind of driving out of of, of Champagne on my way to the airport. Um, and we had a coffee on the street and I shook his hand and said, pleased to meet you. And then it was five minutes and I was off again. Okay. <laughs> and then I didn't see him again for about a year. So and since then, we've, we've turned as really good mates. And I I've, pretty much every time I go out now, I go and catch up for him with a coffee and maybe a glass. If, sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, more than five minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Ten, max. Yeah. Ten.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. Good, good. Well, I think, um, what, yeah, what we want to do is focus on Champagne as a region. Give our listeners a bit of an overview about the region geographically, historically, either of those you could choose to start with but how how would you how would you describe it where is it what are the main growing regions and if you can i mean it's it's a long but history to just summarize where champagne's right you know how it started where where it is today and what happened in the middle
1: so champagne is a region that sits northeast of paris it is classically considered the kind of Northerly, uh, most northerly um, European um, region for growing of grapes. It's uh, at, on the extreme, basically, of, of what can be considered a, a grape-growing area. It's roughly 34,000 hectares. So it's, it, it's, it's relatively small. Um, but when you go there, when you visit, you realise it is packed with grapes. Yeah. Packed. <laughs> and not much else. So um, it's it pretty packed. It's broken up into regions as, as we were discussing earlier on and, and what these wines show. It's broken up into three, oh, so four main regions. So you have the Cote du Blanc, which is the Bonaire wine. You have the Vallée de Marne, which is the uh, Deluvain wine. You have uh, the Montagne d'Arras, which is the uh, Didier Herbert wine. And then you have the Aube, which is down in the south. So the Aube um, borders the Burgundy region. And it was classically pre. Um, pre the, the the wars in the early 20th century, it's classically was was selling its grapes to either Burgundy or to Champagne. Okay. Um, there are a couple of really important little sub-regions that have been talked about a lot more right now, um, importantly. So um, one of the producers that you mentioned earlier on Beaugrand is um, Montgueux, which is a village that sits just west of Troyes, which is north of the Eau region. So very okay. far south so of So still south. Yeah, yeah. So, so south of the of the Cote de Blanc um, it's the last chalky outcrop um, currently within the, the the Champagne region as you as you sit on the hill of Mongo you can actually see another couple of uh, little waves of chalk that cut through the soil further southwest um which I imagine will become part of the Champagne region in the coming decades as as it's uh, as it grows um part of the part sorry diversity slightly in the conversation. Part of the, the charm, brilliance, and amazing kind of marketing machine that is Champagne is, is it has been constrained. Okay. So it's, it's grown ever so slightly over the, over the generations, but it has been constrained to keep the premium aspect of it. So vineyards are very slowly added. Villages are very slowly added um, as and when they meet criteria. But um,
0: Yeah, so what, like I, I didn't realise that it, I sort of was just designate an area and tough luck. That that might have happened a hundred years ago, and you're 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 now not part of it. Yeah, but you're, you're, what you're saying is it's sort of it's uh, it's live if you like maybe very slowly moves it's it, it very slowly very slowly evolves
1: yeah. moves things get added amended deleted yes okay. but very very slowly sure very very slowly um so you see, so mongo is is a, is a very beautiful village um, we have another producer called um Jean velu which you should try as well we have an amazing wine with him benoit's a really good really good friend and he put aside a special very similar concept so a perpetual reserve yeah um that, um, that he made of pure Chardonnay from there, but he, he lees aged it for longer for us. So it's called a sip edition okay. Lumiere crepe. How, how,
0: how long was it lees aged so another, another
1: five years lees aged okay. so It's a really, okay. really interesting one. Really interesting. Um, so yes, so um, so is a, a key village that you should look out for. And then also um, the Côte de Petit-Morin, which sits beneath the Côte de Blanc and runs down through Cézanne. And it's another really interesting region that I think will become really important in the coming years. So you, you will, um, your, your listeners, and I'm sure you will have heard of the, the wines from Ulysse Collin. Yes, amazing yeah, yeah. Famous. Um, we have another couple of producers, so Udiet and Udiet Fee are two other producers from the village of Boni, which is on the, in the same area, which are really amazing. Really, really amazing producers. And that's a, a sub-region that I think is well worth keeping an eye on um in 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 the the years to come really really fascinating so um so that that's kind of the region um and it's uh yeah as i said it's 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 both big but also quite small when you consider how much is in in vines and then the history is really interesting so I, i'll I'll make it kind of short and snappy because there's lots, there's lots of stuff that has gone on and lots of things that are kind of interesting, but the key, the key point, um, with champagne is champagne was known for producing bracingly acidic wines. Um, one's bizarrely that we seem to like in the UK. Um, I'm not sure why, but we like (laughs) it in the UK in the 16th and 17th century. And, Um, At the same time, we were going through an ice age, a mini ice age in the 1600s. I don't know if you've ever seen those pictures of London with the Thames frozen over, these little sketches that people did.
2: People ice skating.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, In the kind of 1620s and 1630s. And um, making it a very short topic because it's it's hugely complex, but, but in a nutshell, wines were being transported and were dormant. So the fermentations had stopped. Um, and it was in a key time where Britain was at war with everybody. And the admirals at the time told the glass producers to stop using oak to burn the furnaces. So they started to use coal. Coal burns at a much higher temperature, increasing the hardness of the glass that you create. So you created this Ver anglaise, which was being transported. So Historically, they would transport wine in barrel which mm-hmm. if it's fermenting, doesn't really matter. It just keeps fermenting, and the barrel just gives off the carbon dioxide. In a glass bottle, the carbon dioxide can't go anywhere. So you'd, instead of transporting in barrel, you transport it in bottle, because it was veron glazing, so could withstand the travel. The bar- the, the bottle, the, what was in the bottle was, was still undergoing fermentation, although dormant, because it was the low temperatures, because of the, the, uh, the um, mini ice age. And these wines would arrive sparkling in bottle. Um, mainly to the UK market because the UK market loved the wines from Champagne for some bizarre reason because they were horribly acidic. Um, of course, you add carbon dioxide and time to acid, and you get Champagne. Yeah, and that's where Champagne came came into existence. So it's almost like an accident, not an accident, but yeah. So it is it, no, it, exactly that a series
0: and, of a series of events. That...
1: It is exactly, exactly, and, and you know the classic story of Dom Pérignon finding bubbles and blah. It's all clearly just a marketing. Thing. <laughs> it's it, it, he was actually told to try and get rid of the bubbles
2: I'll, I'll let you walk into Moe and Chondall and tell, <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> tell them
1: that <laughs> but it's, it's you know there, there are there are key players in the game and Champagne and all of the people involved in the Champagne region at the time were, were, were working hard to in Dom Perignon cases or Dom Pierre Perignon he was trying to get rid of the bubbles but you know They they they, they spent a lot of time trying to basically manage the bubbles in a way that could be processed and made into a unique product, which is what they did very very well for for centuries, and now have this amazing product. So
0: okay, so that's that's history in a nutshell, geography in a nutshell. Yes. One of the other things we want to talk to you about was terroir in Champagne. So everyone knows, you know, if you're focused on uh, Burgundy or Piedmont, terroir is such a focus. It's often the reason that people describe and understand why for tasting the way it does. The context of terroir is intrinsic to the way that it tastes. Yep. So champagne is the same, but do you feel it gets that airtime? No, or uh, the airtime that it should?
1: No, and, and, and uh, I, with respect would, of terroir. I would very quickly state that I don't think it is the same. Okay. But, but the reason why is because of the history of champagne. Champagne has been about blending. Yes. From, from day one, it's been about blending. Not just blending in terms of a vineyard here, a vineyard there, but blending in terms of grape varieties. You know, you have Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Meunier blended together. Yeah, There's nowhere else that does that in, 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 in the world of, of wine that blends black and white grapes so, so fluently and have done for centuries. Um, escaping Rhone and a couple of <laughs> there's things. No, there's nowhere that's done that. And so I do think, of course... Terroir is important, of course it is, Mm -hmm. but I think Champagne should never forget the fact that it is a it is a a wine that has been created because it sits on the extreme of winemaking. It has to, historically has has had to blend to maintain consistency. And when you blend, you blend out terroir. There can be aspects of terroir that can come through, and of course, certain producers. um, I think you know a good example is is Jerome with his La Closerie, which is, it's a really unique snapshot of a unique terroir in Gueux, mainly Meunier, but with some other great varieties in there as well. That is an expression of terroir. But I don't think, I really don't think you drink that and think about the terroir of Mm Gueux. You think about Mm -hmm. winemaking. Yes. uh, In my eyes. Uh, And I'd love to have a conversation with somebody who, who shouts terroir when they drink it. Because I I don't think that's about terroir. I think that's about a a, a snapshot of winemaking. Um, you know, in, in a in a very in a, in a beautiful bottle. So um,
0: so for single varietals, yes, like these, the the blend is done through the plots of land as opposed to the
1: yeah. grapes exactly. And the, yeah. these two are a great example where yeah. you have got you know pure chardonnay and pure Meunier. Yeah. Um. The 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 the, the Meunier is, is Vaniere, but but um. I I don't think you. Think about the tiroir of Vendier. I think you can, I think you, if you know the region really well, you can kind of understand the, the expression of Meunier in Vendier. I think you, you could, but this is about winemaking, not about tiroir. Um, and I don't mean that in any, with any disrespect towards um, Jeff Dillivan. I, I think, I think he's, he's captured the fruit of Vendier very well. Yes, But I think what he's created here is a beautiful wine that is made with winemaking excellent winemaking skill to create something that's rich and fruity and engaging. And the same with Jean-Emmanuel's um, Chardonnay there. I think it's a really interesting expression. This is Cramon with a little bit of Chouy and Wari. Mm-hmm. I, I think you, you definitely get Cramon in it because cramel for me is always that layer, beautiful layer of, of thick, chalky grip to it. You know, it's slightly higher acidity, main, main feel to it that, that I really, really love. Um, but I think, again, that's this more more winemaking. I, I, I think the, the, the expression of terroir, sorry, going on the back end of that, mm. I think the expression of terroir is a conversation that has come out of other winemaking regions, is being shoehorned into champagne mm-hmm. it, with a very, very clear intent, which is, I think the world of champagne has evolved in the last 25 years. I think you, when you consider the way climate change has affected Wine making, since probably about 88, I would say, you start to notice this lower acid profiles, higher fruit, fruit expression, um, which allows producers in Champagne to create wines that are, are probably more a sense of place, so a sense of terroir, um, But Champagne's still battling with the fact that it is a blend of three grape varieties. And most people who produce a wine, they do blend it either through vintages or grape varieties or multiple soil areas. A lot of people are kind of putting their foot in the door of a Ludi or a single vintage, a single, sorry, single vineyard expression um, and seeing what happens and seeing whether that fits. But I think it's a really fine line because. And, the, and hopefully these three wines show you when, when I pick champagne, when I want to have champagne, it, it has to tick a few boxes. And I did a video about this like the other day on Instagram. It's like champagne can never not be just damn drinkable. yeah I want it to be something that I pick up the glass and I go, oh, amazing. I want to have another glass. It always has to fit and tick that box. And if it doesn't, for me... It's not done the first thing that champagne needs to do, which is just be a really drinkable drink. Mm. Of course, it can have an amazing story. It can talk about terroir and classic Mm. examples. And we have another producer called um, Pertweiler Brun, who does a beautiful single vineyard uh, wine from menil sur called Le Chétillon. And it is a brilliant expression of Chétillon. Single, ludi, in Menil, Grand Cru, 100% Chardonnay. And it's brilliant but and this is really important it is that but over and above that it's just really beautiful and drinkable and it's a great champagne mm-hmm. and of course i can have it with scallops ceviche and and enjoy it with a you know a bit of bit of light white meat or whatever but actually i want to have it just on its own because it's really delicious and and that's what it has to be at every moment
0: and so so for sip in terms of your your framework for choosing what you buy and what you're going to include in your portfolio. Damn drinkable sounds like that's a bit of a yeah. number one. But w- w- what are the other things that you you look out for? Is it relationship with a producer? Is it, you know, are you torn by, oh, you can only work with that producer if you buy X number of other wines that you might not be so interested in? How, how do you sort of go about?
1: Yeah, so, so on that note, really importantly, we only work with the wines that we want to work with, Okay, which is a breaker for some people, which I totally understand. You know, we we, we, we have... We don't work with all of Jean Emmanuel's wines. We we don't work with all of delivan's wines. Um, we work with Thomas Herbert's wines because he only makes three wines and they're all yep. amazing. So yep. um, that's quite but, nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, look, they have to be damn drinkable. Absolutely. The relationship with the producer is so important. I mean, it sound, it's it sounds too obvious to say, it, but it, it literally you have to get on with them. You have to get what they're doing. They have to get what we're doing. And if that's not there then we, we can't work together yeah. so that that's that, that's very very important i i think you know for me we have so many different wines we have so many different areas that we that we look at I, I think for me it's just it's always about continuing the journey seeing what what a wine can bring to our portfolio and importantly what a wine can bring that's unique it's it's got to have an, a you know a new a new aspect a new part to the story and i think you know we just brought a producer on called uh, really, really beautiful wines from Mâcon, which is in the Petit Montagne so the north northwest part of the the region. And and number one, the wines were super, super delicious, super drinkable. But also, he's he's just a beautiful character in in of himself. He's just a really lovely guy. Um, you really get a sense of of his purpose and poise about what he's doing. Um, and you know, I, I I I've met him a few times now. Um, it was so obvious when I tried the wines maybe a year or so ago, when I first tried them pre-release, you were just like, wow, this is, you, you, you really get what he's doing. You really get a sense of, of, of where he is on his journey. And, and it was just obvious, right? Mm. You've got to, got to have these wines. They're, they're amazing. So, um, again, we took all of his wines cause they're just, they're all brilliant. They're all absolutely brilliant. Yeah, uh, and really, really good.
0: one one other thing I wanted to touch on, which you've already mentioned, is price rises in Champagne yes. <laughs> over the last sort of five years in particular. Wh- what's the, wh- what do you think the driving forces are behind that? I know there's certain ways that supply and demand are sort of controlled and there's a bit of contention over yes. that in terms of the region of Champagne. But yeah, what, what, could you sort of lay out what the, what the drivers are for that and what, what you think might be, where we might be heading in the next 510?
1: Yeah, look, it's a hugely complex structure so i i I, it it seems unfair to simplify it but in Mm -hmm. a nutshell champagne is a huge machine that is run by a central body that dictates production levels um and because it's a confined space if you dictate production levels therefore you dictate costs um Mm -hmm. so in a nutshell we went through covid and where producers had originally thought their price level, their, sorry, their uh, sales levels would go down. Sales actually went up massively. But coming off the back of that, because the, the, the governing body of Champagne had seen what was happening, they worried about production levels. So they actually decreased harvest output in the very beginning of COVID. So you've got this perfect storm where sales went rocketing, production levels went down, yeah. and we're now in the, the middle of, of a situation where they can't help but put prices up because they've got no stock because production levels went down. So they, they, they controlled it to a certain extent. Um, and I, I think we're probably going to be in a difficult position with Champagne in the next couple of years. I think the, there's going to be a squeeze, and we can feel that now. We can feel the squeeze happening. Um, and I, I suspect prices won't go down, I warn you. <laughs> <laughs> but i suspect they will stabilize i yeah. can't imagine there's going to be any huge price rises i think the top end will continue to increase prices so i, I think you know the sure they're really yeah the yeah the really market top market end market. wines I, and I, when i say top end i mean top end prices not not quality but it's top end price wines they'll continue to go up probably stupidly because the market is there there's that you know one two percent of people who are willing to spend x mm. on a bottle of I'll name Armand de Brignac or whatever, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. For, um, Put it out there, we're all thinking, it. yeah, 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 here we are, yeah. <laughs> whatever, yeah. Um, so, so, but, but I, I suspect it'll stabilize a little bit. Um, and and I, I hope from our perspective, I hope that that allows people to, to maybe take another look at growers rather than going for their negotiations, mm. you know, their standard negotiations,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess. But anyone who Price rises make some squirm, uh, which I think I think it probably does for us. I also just want to take a moment to just like reflect on that that second wine because yeah. it's mm. really really good. I mean, honestly, I'm sorry, I don't want to bring in price, but like for the value for money, that is so good yeah. and just really really delicious. Like immediately it, when I smelt it and put it on the palate, it was just completely different. Yeah, um, yeah, seriously, seriously, it, cool it's
0: wine. it's cheaper than the vast, vast majority of what you're finding in a supermarket
2: yeah. at the moment. You
0: know, all, yeah. the, all the big brand names on the shelves are more expensive than this. And as you say, this is a literal one-off. You, know, yeah. you don't think there's another one that's made
1: No, you know, exactly and in and the think, same way.
0: And it's, it's fantastic.
1: And, and I think the great thing about it, as, as we were talking earlier on, is that I think you can quite happily drink this on its own. It doesn't feel heavy. But if you want to sit there and chat about it with friends and talk about the nuances of it, you can. If you want to chuck some food at it, it'll take it. Yeah. It's just it's got every single box ticked. I think in terms of a wine, I think I think it's I think it's spot on. I think it's, it's such but a great wine.
2: A very a very personal question from from, from thinking of building my cellar. Uh, how long how long would you think you could age that for?
1: So uh, a, a long time. So he produces a cuvee uh, called Semper Fidelis, which is exactly the same wine but aged on lees. So um, you can age it. So that's aged another five years, I think, on lees. I think you could quite happy put that in the cellar for 10, 15 years. And you just, it's just going to get more nutty, more rich, more depth to it. Yeah, it's, it'll, it'll be good.
2: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well I know where I'm going after this. Yeah. Um, cool. Should, I think we should try the, the third one. Let's, yeah, let's move on. I'm to, excited. Yeah, the third
0: one. So we, we've, we've done the Chardonnay. We've done the Pinot Meunier. Now time for the Pinot Noir. So this is Didier Herbert. Pinot Noir, DH2. You'll have to explain that in a minute. Two grams a litre, 100% oak vinification, 2018, Montagne de Rasse. Give us a bit more info. Tell us, so, about, tell us about this guy, yes, what this so, wine is.
1: So it, it's, it's a really cool wine. So I know the, the family Didier Herbert. Okay. Um, without, I, I won't give them the, kind of the dark secrets of the family. But yes. in a nutshell, in 2017... The, um, the, the, the father who, who ran the estate was looking to move the estate on. And his son at the time, maybe it's slightly pre, slightly pre that, but his yeah. son basically I don't think was really into the idea of making champagne. Okay. He gave an opportunity to create something, and he created this. Now, the, 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 the family estate historically had been, a, you know, big steel vats, fill and full of Pinot Noir, <laughs> fill and full of Chardonnay. And make a wine, and they were great wines. And we brought them on the Pinot Noir that you were talking about earlier on. The pure Pinot Noir from Viasini is a beautiful yeah. expression of Pinot Noir from from the, from the, the eastern part of the Montagne But But um, Thomas, the son, came and produced this very different expression. So new oak from Russo barrels, new oak, single varietal expressions from the northern part of the Montagne de So you're looking at really Le Montagne, Louvois, Maill, Lude yeah. areas. <clears throat> And these were pure Pinot Noir, pure Chardonnay, and pure Meunier. And for me, when I tried them, it was just one of those wonderful expressions of, and I mean this with with respect to Thomas, it was so refreshing to have somebody who probably didn't have the kind of, you know, the real heart and soul of champagne in him. And he was just like, I'm just going to give this a go, see where it takes us. And he made this wine, and it was, intense just (laughs) full-on intense just unbelievable levels of fruit huge kind of oak um you know weight to it and and I was just I remember trying it just going well this is completely ridiculous I've got I've got to have this immediately at the time the the father was trying to sell the estate um and I think he basically saw his son's wines as like this kind of, oh, that's not what we do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he basically just turned around, well, fine, you can just have them all. So we just bought all of them, the whole, okay. the whole stock. And we're talking small numbers. So yeah, you know, yeah, sure. Several hundred bottles of each.
0: So for you guys, just right place, right time. Oh, it was
1: perfect. Yeah, it was, okay. actually, I was on the door just going, I mean, this is perfect. I'll yeah, take them all. So- just take them all. Yeah. Long story short, he, the estate never sold and Thomas took over. And he is slowly winding down the the Didier Herbert wines mm-hmm. and moving it to Herbert and Co, which will be released. I think if it's not been released now, it's released in the next few weeks. Is his new brand? Herbert okay,
0: Co. Well, yeah, because you you tag them on that. I tagged Insta. them on.
1: I don't know if they're actually physically live yet. I'm guessing by the fact that he's got the an that they, they must be live. But yeah, um, yeah.
0: Well, we'll have a look after. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. So Thomas is he's, he's, he's a long history in the region. Um, he went off and did something else, but he's come back in and now he's making champagne, and he's making these really individual intense, rich, full-on champagnes. And when, when you meet him, you'll see why. He's an intense, fuller, full-on kind of you know, experience of a, of a man. Yeah. And I, I, I love champagne for all it can be. And I think this expression is all you can be. Okay. It's, as the back label says, it's a 1,000% Pinot Noir. It's intense. A couple of things. So it is 2018. Really important yes. little note you'll see from the top of the bottle as well. is aged on cork, not cap. So, you see the shape of the bottle. Oh, it's broken as well. Oh, yeah, ah. it is. It's got a chip. Yeah, chip out of it. We'll, we'll, we'll get another bottle, Thomas. <laughs> uh, uh, so, yes, so, it's, so the reason why it's chipped is, is it has what's called an graph, which is a staple that goes over the top. And it undergoes its second fermentation with a cork, not a cap. So, okay. caps were introduced in the 60s. And the idea, basically, back in the 60s was obviously minimize um, cork issues and speed up the process because to get the real benefits of cork age, you need a bit more time. Sure. Um, some producers have gone back to that process. This is one of them. We have a, a load of others as well. Um, to, to, name, to name a couple, George Remy and Domaine Vancey are another couple of producers who use it in our portfolio that I think use it beautifully. And the idea is that you allow a small ingress of oxygen early on in the process of maturation. Yep. And that means that you get this lovely... Lovely little touch of kind of creamy, toffied oxidation, but it never feels overpowering Um, because after about six or seven months, the closure really ramps, ramps up and the oxidation goes down massively, way below that of a cap. So you get this really clean, crisp profile at the back end. So it doesn't feel in any way oxidized or oxidative.
0: Okay. Below a cap? Yes, below yeah. that. So, how yeah. does that work? Sorry, it, I mean, it's just
1: it's just the way the way uh it's 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 the way the cork expands out right. over a period of, okay. of, of months, and obviously because yeah, you cap, just would
0: have thought a cap would be more.
1: Yeah, well, remember the cap is only commerce. it's only closing around the top of the the bottle, whereas yes. a cork closes over the top and, and 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 you know an inch or so into the bottle as well. so yeah. it's, a, it's much firmer closure once it's expanded out into the bottle. It takes It takes several months to expand okay. out into the bottle.
0: Okay, yeah. and so. I, I purposely haven't smelled, tried this yet, because I wanted to hear you yes, talking about yeah. it. When I go to my glass, and if listeners are buying this wine, what should they be expecting from the glass, on the nose, the palate?
1: So, so and this is, this is basically why I, I, I brought this wine on, and the Meunier, and he also does another cuvee called Coup um, Four, and he'll be expanding those in the coming years um, with, 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 with more wines. Mm-hmm. But what, what, for me, what I want to have... Is a really rich and intense and fruity front end. It's very important for me that if you're gonna use something like young oak to vinify, that's fine. Yep. And you'll feel the oak on the palate, definitely. But I want, I want the fruit as well. So I want to feel the, spru- the, fr- the intensity of the fruit, the richness of the fruit. And you definitely get that. So the, the nose is, is loads of black currant, blackberry. Um, with a kind of slightly toasty note to it, and also slightly quite heavy toasty note to it as well, but um, a little bit of sea salt.
0: (sighs) Yeah, there's some sort of crystalline mineral.
2: I I was almost getting, like, a hint of this. This is something that Ben and I have, like, got quite hooked into, not necessarily with champagne, but it's got this almost, like, gun
1: smoke-like... Type smell to it so, so this is interesting so that, that gun smoke note Cause, is because you is, get it in
2: burgundy yeah with like i don't know there's some producers we've been following like um, a couple of bottles by guffin's Henyon we've had which like has this like gun smoke quality to it. i don't know if that's
1: yes yeah, so, so I, I i i totally get that I, I feel exactly that i think that's a reductive element that comes into it to do with probably a mix between the way he uses young oak and the fact that he's using cork aging. Mm. Um, and you get this, yeah, you get this kind of hot, yeah, gun smoke touch of, like a unf- rubber is not the right notes, but it, mm. it has that slightly, slightly reductive element to it as well. But, you know, you, you I have to take another glass. <laughs> it's just, the, it's the intensity of the fruit, the richness of it. And these are only, <clears throat> only two-year-old oak barrels. Yep. And it doesn't feel oaky. But there is that kind of you know big rich warmth of oak that comes through on the palate, um, and again, I, I I love this producer. I love the wine, and I love the fact that this producer has come in with a with a pretty fresh pair of eyes and just gone right. We're going to create something. It's going to be full on. It's going to be intense. It's going to be rich, and it's going to express this this particular part of the region. And, done, and I don't think it does it so well.
0: Done, done something quite cool, given. His whole thing was, oh, "I'll just have a stab at it." Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's exactly. Pretty, pretty ridiculous.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That that. Well, it's it's so so delicious, and I'm sure we're going to come back to it on the on the podcast. But let's let's get into uh, grower champagne. We've mentioned that term a heck of a lot. Yeah, um, and it seems only really bizarre that we're now going to try and define <laughs> exactly, it. Uh, exactly what just in the simplest possible terms. What actually is like a grower champagne? So
1: the 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 the, the a grower champagne basically is somebody who who owns vines in, in the region of Champagne and makes wine from that uh, vineyard, or vineyards, plural. Uh, very simply, that's all it is. The, the technicality around it um, is that they have to, to be called a Mini Pilon. they have to make it in their own setup. So they have to have their own press, their own uh, vinification setup, so that they can make it themselves. There are a couple of other, and we actually work with a few cooperatives, so uh, Cooperative Pilon who who have their own vines, but use a cooperative to make their Champagne. So Salmon Rion is one of them, and uh, Le Clerminard is another one. Uh, Both unbelievably brilliant wines, but in their current form, they don't have the size to warrant purchasing a press. Sure.
0: Yeah, there must be quite a bit of barrier to entry having yeah, to have yeah, your own huge, setup to be huge, able to even. Hugely yeah. so,
1: absolutely. Um, but I do stress they make their own wine from their own grapes in their cooperatives. So they, yeah. uh, I think it's really, really important to state that. I think the the historical idea that if you're a CM, you don't make your own wine, you just give it to a cooperative and they, they make it. That's not the case with these two producers. They make their own wines and they are beautiful, really, really beautiful. So a, a Recolton must have their own setup so they can make their own wine from their grates, press them and put them into barrel tank, whatever. Um, and it's, it, it, is, it is, to a certain extent, very important, um, but I don't, want to, I don't want to overplay it because I do think negotiants have a very important role. In what champagne is about, and a very important role in defining defining what it can what champagne can be, and I think a lot of producers who own their own vines, make their own wines, have moved to become negociants in the last decade for various reasons, and I don't think they should be poo-pooed because they did it. It's just yeah. a, It's sometimes it's a it's a reason to to hand down estates to to the next generation without being taxed punitively. Sometimes it's a way of saying, well, actually, I really, I really want to make a rosé, but I don't have black grapes. So I'm going to have to buy grapes. Let's let's become a negotiant so I can buy a small amount of Meunier or Pinot Noir so I can make a rosé something like that. You know, there's a small tolerance. So you're allowed, I I think I'm right in saying you're allowed to buy up to five percent. Um, as a record on manipulant. but um, but you can you can understand it. And I think a few producers, I, I think um, you'll you'll notice when you look at the back labels of producers like Emmanuel Brochet, Fritz Savant, um, and many many others, they're now négociants um, because they recognise that their you know their their wines have gone up like this in terms of price and the quality that they're producing. But their their entry level cuvee they just can't supply enough. So they use, usually what they end up doing, they become negotiants so they can buy grapes to service their entry-level sure. QAs, which is absolutely fine as long as quality stays consistent and their top-end wines are still made very much from their own grape, uh, from their own vineyards. Um, and in fact, you know, good, a good example of, of a negotiant who does it is Louis Roderick. Absolutely fantastic negotiant. Uh, Jean-Baptiste Lacayon is one of the best winemakers in the region without doubt. And, all of their vintage Goubets, so their Blanc de Blanc, their vintage, their Rosé, Cristal, Cristal Rosé, all of those wines are made from their own vineyards. The Brut Collection, which is their new, yes. Brut, new Brut Premier that they call, is made from Negotiant wines. Okay. okay. And, and some of their own vineyards, of course. Sure. But this so is basically exactly the same concept.
2: Okay. And what do you think sort of, actually, so that's quite interesting. So sorry, just going back to like that. So just to succinctly put it. So that they're like, because there was quite a lot there. So a grower of champagne essentially then is someone who's producing wine from their own vineyards in champagne and doing the wine production themselves essentially yes, exactly and not buying grapes they own the end-to-end process basically. yes exactly exactly okay so that okay because that's interesting because I think most people would have the perception and certainly I probably did until you've just uh, kind of defined it that some of the Grand Marks say would actually not constitute a grower champagne. I think there's this idea that they're like smaller houses, uh, less well known. Um, so I think that's probably actually like quite interesting for people. Um, there's probably like a growing interest in those smaller producers. What do you think is the reason for that? I mean, it's probably because people like you have started talking about them, but. <laughs> uh,
1: look, I think, as I said earlier, I, I don't want in any way to discount negotiations because I think they it play a very important role and I love a lot of their wines. But the reality nowadays, as we move, you know, the, the world is moving on from, from, you know, big corporation, you know, that, 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 that concept. And I think consumers are becoming a little bit more nuanced about what they, what they want, what they choose to drink. People, we're seeing terrifyingly, people are drinking less. Mm. And if you're going to drink a glass of something or two, maybe, why not drink something with a bit more of a story, a bit more of a connection? where you're not drinking, and I mean, I'd a bottle of Dom Perignon, you're, you're not drinking a bottle of Dom Perignon, you're drinking something where the grower, he or she, has grown those vines, produced it themselves, created the design of the bottle. Some of the bottles are terrible labels, but <laughs> <laughs> done their own design on the labels, and they're creating something unique. And it's an expression of them, that one individual person, or, or, or like you're discussing, an expression of terroir, like a one specific bit of soil, that they want to express, that's really cool. And I think that's, that's a very, I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's a very seductive conversation to have with a consumer and say, look, actually, of course you can buy a negociant, but actually, why don't you try this, this producer here? Because she's been making wines now for three years, and this is her first expression of whatever the soil is, and it's really super cool. And it's yeah. really amazing to, to, to find that little... Little expression from that little person. We we have a producer called Perrine Frin, and we've just brought her on her first wine earlier this year, and it, and she's in a village called Sommier, and is literally the only producer who's making their own wine from the, from that village that's not part of the cooperative, and it's just a really gorgeous expression, really lovely, and she's the loveliest person, and and it you know you can't help but just get completely taken away by this, this wonderful wine that's just a really lovely expression of this tiny little village in the, in the northern Montandorans.
2: Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And like, yeah, when you put it like that, I guess that's why people buy into it. Because once you tell that story and that narrative, it's quite hard not to get lost yeah. in the wine. So, yeah. so much more of a personal element. Really. Yeah. So- as, as someone who's then bringing that to market, surely that's, what are the challenges in like managing something in such low supply?
1: Yeah, I mean, basically, it's a which is basically <laughs> why, why why we have sixty plus producers, because you know we we get tiny allocations from these people. You know, we mm-hmm. we got a hilarious producer called Tom Gauditier, uh, really like about basically near Paris, who we get an allocation of. I mean, last year's allocation was thirty bottles, thirty right. bottles. Um, so uh, the wines are exquisite. He's a lovely guy. Um, and, I mean, his production is comically small. he's you know, just a few barrels. But you just got to have it. Because it's a tiny village out west. The wines are brilliant. Um, and we get this tiny allocation. We just put it up goes, the new the new village has arrived, and it's gone. You know? and then, and then, yeah, that must, that must <laughs> and so, go, like,
0: so quickly. Yeah, it's just go, yeah,
1: it goes before it's even yeah. put on the shipment. I mean, it yeah. just goes, and that's it. Um, and then we, we get, you know, that, that one of the beauties of producers like Bonaire, and to a certain extent, Dillyman is we get consistent quantities throughout, so we can we can really service. The kind can of buy the glass options with restaurants and bars with things like that. Not not so much with the Pinot Noir, but from from mm-hmm. Didier Herbert, but but with the with the Novak and the the Bonnet, we get that ability to do that. So we can really get consistency with the likes of those wines, and then the little drops, the the Tom Gatti Tibois, the you know to a less extent. Domaine Vancey, George Remy, um, Le Cleminard, Rousseau Bateau, those those wines where we get, you know, 50, 100, 150 bottles, these cuvées, we can kind of dot in there there or thereabouts. I do a video on Instagram and they're sold, and that's it. Mm. We just move on to the next one. So it becomes this constant story, this constant narrative. We're just taking you on a journey with a new wine, a new thing from the Petit Montanerat, from the Obe, from the...
0: Yeah, but that that feeds back to exactly what you're saying at the start about like discovery, trying something new, finding yeah. new things, and it's reflected in what what consumers can access through yeah your portfolio. Of, of, yeah, of exactly that. Exactly yeah. that.
2: Yeah. And then in terms of then, okay, so I'm listening. I'm new to this whole grow champagne gig, and I'm thinking cool stories, cool wines. You're advising someone. Like, where would you even advise them to start if they were looking to get hold of some? What would you What would you be thinking?
1: Well, I, I think I think like you were describing earlier on. I think the, the 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 best way to enter into it is is to go for a, an exploration case. Just go for yeah. something that that allows you just to, to find yourself on a journey through champagne. You can go to the various regions, or you do an exploration through a great variety, like Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Monier, whatever it may be, or some roses, or just just to get you on on that route. I, I think. You you literally can't. The best thing you can do is to drink champagne. You know, it sounds kind of obvious, but you know, sitting talking about it is one thing. I, you know, gladly today we're sitting talking and we're drinking because the only way you can talk about it is to drink it and taste it and get a feel of of what these wines are about and what the winemaker is trying to achieve in in the bottle. I think you you know the, the great thing about the expiration cases and and what we do with sip um, with that is the difference. You know, if you go for the Chardonnay exploration, we'll take you on a journey of Chardonnay throughout the region. And it is mind blowing how different Chardonnay can be from the from the you know from the Obe all the way up to the Petit Montrants. It's just the difference in the way that the terroir expresses itself, the difference in the way the winemaking expresses itself, you know, natural yeast, inoculations, whatever it may be, it's yeah. it's a huge difference in the way they where they can express. Yeah. And
2: then in terms of like <laughs> thinking for the future, what are sort of the trends that are going to shape grower Champagne in the region generally. Um, where do you see it going?
1: So I, th- I think the, and we touched on it slightly earlier on, and I can dodged the question a little bit, but I think, I think the biggest trend is going to be uh, viticultural. Um, I, think, I think the region is moving towards fully organic uh, viticulture, which I do stress is, I think it's a good thing. Um, it doesn't come without its issues. I very clearly stress and I think when you go out to the region, especially around harvest time, and you see how hard the region has to work to maintain organic and or biodynamic um, viticulture, it's, it's not easy.
2: And just to explain that, is that because it's so far north and therefore it's just hard to contain disease pressure and things like that? Exactly
1: that. So, you know, disease pressures are huge in Champagne and um, you're... You know, we're not we're not talking about people with huge amounts of vineyards. You know, most the average vineyard holding is is two and a half two two and a half hectares. So it's not huge, but when you're trying to hold down disease like mildew and things like that, it's just impossible. Um, so it means selection is important, very very important, and and I think producers there's there's only you know these guys and girls are not mowers They're not LVMH. They don't have money flying around to, you know, throw at staff members to go out and look after the vines. They're doing it themselves. And I, th- I suppose, like everything in life, there's only so much bandwidth you can have. And you know, making champagne is not. It's not just in the vineyards. You have a lot of other things going on. You know, these these guys and girls are. They are the, the person working in the vineyards. They are also the person doing the design for the labels. They're also yeah. the person doing the work in the winery. They're also the person doing the marketing. They're also the person talking to me on a Friday afternoon when I need to get a shipment across on Monday. You know, they're, they're, they're everything to their champagne. And I mean, it's just them. It's literally nobody else. I mean, when you, when you go to Jeff Didavan, I've, I've never met anybody else. It's just him. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just him. You know, I, I think maybe... Maybe one of his parents, you know, does a little bit of paperwork on a Friday afternoon <laughs> or whatever, but that's literally just him. Um and, and he's one of our bigger producers. So you, you you it it's a lot of work. And when you when you tie on to the fact that, you know, with with organic um viticulture, you you are gonna be in the vineyards more. You just are. Mm. just full stop, you're gonna be in the vineyards more, which means you can do less work elsewhere. Um and that's going to put a huge stress on, on things. There are also a couple of, and I won't get into it because it's, it's, it, it, it's a topic I haven't researched much myself, but there are a couple of um, things that might come in in the coming decade or so in terms of planting. And I think there's a bit of, I think it's called VSL, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's a, a way of planting the vineyards in a nutshell. And I'm, I'm making it very easy for people to correct me here, but basically so that they can use machines to do things right so they're planting them putting less density in to increase output and allow machines to come in and manage things more easily um which gets rid of the need for staff or or staff or people basically and i think that's gonna that it's gonna cause a lot of contentious a lot of issues um and obviously the big the big players like it because it means their costs go down production levels go up Easier to maintain vineyards. Um, yeah, that yeah. be that would be something really interesting to watch. Oh yeah,
2: um, yeah. I, that wasn't what I was expecting. Actually, <laughs> you no, know, it's just because so, so funny because all the wines that, or so many of the wines that we like, you know, you suddenly start realizing, you know, especially on the organic and biodynamic thing, that sort of like seventy odd percent of them, or whatever, I'm making up a percentage, are actually organic biodynamic without you sort of realizing. Yeah, and um,
1: exactly that. A lot of the producers that we work with are organic in anything but name they just you know no no herbicides no pesticides so just just they get about their way and you know i mean when you look at organic I, and i'm saying this with my with my um, cider hat on when you look at the organic status and how it works it's, it's great and I, I think more people should be pushing towards it it's a great concept, and but you know when you realize that there are tolerance levels for the use of herbicides and pesticides anyway and most of these producers are doing that Anyway, so they're not yeah. they're not willy nilly just like throwing pesticides around. It's like they're only using it in extreme cases. And when you realize that organic allows you to use those tolerances anyway, um, yeah. So
0: what you mean is is there, is there a need to go through that whole certification process exactly, just to maintain something that you're already doing?
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I and, and I, I do I do question it to an extent, but I, I recognize it's a very important um, thing to do. I think so. Go, go back if I, if I may. Go back to what you're saying. I think I think one of the biggest things for me, and we, we touched on this a few times is what's happening to the style of champagne and has happened over the last decade or so so as post 88 and the slow um, increase in ph of, of the base wines as harvest kind of uh, as as maturation levels shortens harvest became earlier and earlier and earlier it makes wines more drinkable more quickly and I think one of the things to remember about champagne is champagne is famous for being an acid bomb. It's famous for being fresh and vibrant. And to, certain extent, to a certain extent, obviously, you, you, you want to have a wine approachable. You want it to be approachable. But also so much of champagne is about waiting, having time, you know, having two, three, four, five years on Lees and having that Lees ageing combine with the acid profile to create a rich wine that's really really fascinating one of the big worries for me as champagne grows up in this modern era is you're you're getting a lot of wines that are wines so you put the wine to your your mouth you have a glass go oh that's that's nice that's rich you put it down and you don't go back to it because it's nice and it's rich and it's full and I don't want to have more of it and I think champagne can never forget the fact that it is and it is a marketing ploy but it is a it's a wine it's a wine-off celebration yeah. it's something you want to have again and again and you want to open another bottle and you want to share it with your friends and one of the big worries for me is, I saw you know the prices skyrocketing across the region I really worried that people consumers We'll just go, well, I'm, I'm not going to spend that. Or if you spend it, you'll buy a bottle, not a case. Mm. Yeah. You know, you, you want to you have champagne with your friends and you want to buy a case because they're coming over on Friday night and it's John's birthday and you want to have something special and it has the word champagne on it. And you open a bottle and you open another. And before you know it, the case is finished. And then you move on to a white or a red, but you've had a case of champagne. And I think some, the champagne's got to remember that it, primarily that is what it's for. And of course, there are lots of, lots of champagnes that will sit nicely in between, but I don't want champagne to become the drink that you have with the dish, whatever yeah. it is, because you'll lose the, fun, the, you know, the fundamentals, which is it, it needs to be that drink that you have several glasses of. Yeah, yeah.
2: God, I can't wait to come to your house for my birthday celebration. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, God, I think, Peter, I guess, just, just to summarise from our side, um, you know, one of the things that we were like super, super keen to do when we set up the Premier crew was to introduce people to awesome and eccentric characters in the wine trade and just like the passion you've brought today has been everything that, that we wanted. And, uh, yeah, it's been just a really fulfilling experience for us as well as hopefully yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
2: <laughs> to everyone, you can find, uh, sip champagnes, uh, online. We'll post the link in the description and also the links to the three wines, uh whatever channel you're on uh remember to link like subscribe you can follow us on social media uh across facebook uh, and instagram uh, so you can stay updated um but ben and i will be back next week uh with another little individual episode just us two but in the meantime peter thank you so much and welcome to the Premier crew